RBA review dictates end of democracy and sovereignty and payday for pigs gorging at the war trough. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 28th of April 2023. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. On today's show, we're going to be discussing uh, the RBA review, the headline of which is they want to remove the legislative power that government has to override the Reserve Bank. Yep. Uh, so we'll get to that and we're also going to talk about the... Um, the feeding frenzy, the corporate feeding frenzy from the war agenda, the people who told, sold us the war yeah. and now making squillions out of it. With AUKUS and subs and all of that and where the rest of us are paying for it, big time. Uh, now, don't forget to hit the like button and share this as widely as you can. You can also subscribe and hit the notification bell so that we'll alert you of any extra content. We've got a bit of that coming up. Uh, and you can also uh, follow the link below to donate if you can, which is how we uh, keep the whole campaign running and keep putting the pressure, maximum pressure, onto our elected officials to make sure that they make the right choices in this coming period of crisis. Now, a few announcements before getting started. Um, today is the deadline, well, today when we're filming the show, by the time you watch this uh, most people, it will have already passed, but it was the deadline for the regional banking inquiry to and, take submissions on branch closures. Yep, and the Australia Post Modernisation Review submissions deadline as well. Um, so the uh, the regional banking inquiry has attracted a lot of serious mm. engagement, a lot. And if you go onto the website, you can see the submissions are up there. Take the time and have a perusal of them. Um, they got so many submissions from individuals, i.e. people like our viewers, that they actually had to stop processing them for a while so they could start processing the institutional submissions they mm. received. And so there's a big... They, they jumped from, I think, 255... Number 255 up to 370 or something. But I called the committee. They got well over 500. And it's not even closed, you know, like as of today, as of when you and I are talking. It's still open until tonight. So who knows how many they're going to end up getting. But the engagement at an institutional level is very high level. There's lots and lots of councils that have put in submissions, but there's also banks, there's the Reserve Bank, there's the South Australian Government, um, there's the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, there's the, the, the real power brokers of Australia, like the Country Women's Association, <laughs> have a submission in there. Um, I'm looking forward to reading that one. Now, what this means, um, just for the benefit of the viewer, you know, the regulars the, who have been in, who watch the show every week, you know how much work we put into getting this submission, getting this inquiry up. With you know, we work with Dale Webster, the independent journalist, and Martin North. Um, when you get an inquiry up, you don't, you can't control who is going to engage with it, right? So you can only do your best. Well, this level of engagement proves that this issue has a lot of traction out there, and now the. Committee members will be very aware that they have a big inquiry on their hands, a very, very big inquiry. They've got a tiger by the tail in many respects. And who knows where this is going to end up? We asked people to really make the point about the postal bank. 
Um, that's going to be clearly become a feature of this of this inquiry going forward, and it's going to keep pushing that agenda, which is great because what we're going to go through mm. in a little bit is the opposite of that agenda. And there's been some uh, additional coverage, like news.com.au <clears throat> this week had some coverage about the branch closures. We'll put that up. Um, there's coverage today in the press. Sorry, about... Lisa. AAP also had a really good article about. Um, well, the news.com.au article is the finance sector union getting really insistent, saying this inquiry is on NAB and these other banks must stop closing branches because they are being so arrogant. NAB is just, NAB is, you know, um, Godzilla just going around stomping on town after town after town at the moment and not caring in the world because they know they've got impotent, pathetic politicians in power who are such supplicants to them, they will never stand up to them. Right, we have to. Our, what we're trying to do is put a spine in those people's backs, right? So they actually do start to stand up to bank, these banks because this is this is um, unconscionable. So the FSU's come out swinging, good on them. AAP did a really important story that was in the Perth in Perth now, and, and it's been picked up in other places about um, poor old Carnama in Western Australia, which lost its Westpac, um, mm. uh, and then other and th- their story is is, is um, has brought has taken what's been put in submission so far. Right, so one of the lines from Carnamo is mm. that people in Carnamo have to take a 120 kilometre bus trip to the next town to do their banking, mm. and some and wait two days for the return bus. Because yeah. the thing is, you've got to do banking. There's no alternative to banking. You've got to do it, right? And that's all Westpac's achieved by shutting the branch there again in defiance of this inquiry. Um, and then the 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 the, the Isaac uh, Council in Queensland. Their submission points out that they have two banks, two banks in an area the size of Tasmania. Mm. Two banks, right? Mm. And remember, when we rant and rave about the banks, they are the most profitable banks in the world and they get $5 billion a year injected them as pure profit from the taxpayer on top of that. And for those who might say, well, people can still go to Australia Post, there was an article in the press today foreshadowing closure of Australia Post branches because the new CEO there is crying over, you know, the budget bottom line and, you know, this is all expensive and so on and so forth. So that We, we might elaborate on that a little bit more later, but our, yeah. what we've done is put in, the, in essentially the same submission to the Regional Bank Inquiry we've put into the Australia Post yeah. review because there's no need. Same solution. The to solution both. is there. Set up a postal bank and it's beautiful. It's the ultimate win-win. It's, it's tomato and basil of business, government business enterprises. Mm. Post, the, by, using, by the bank using the post office, it can provide postal banking services cheaply. Mm. By the post office allowing itself to be an agency for the bank, it gets the revenue to support postal services. That's why postal banks work. That's the alternative. That's the, that's the solution available to the Australian government, right? Which, doesn't, which means those essential post offices stay open everywhere in Australia. That's what's available to them. The only objection comes from the big four banks. The only losers will be the big four banks. So are they going to allow this Australia Post review to smash postal services all across Australia for the benefit of those big four banks? Are they going to go with a damn solution? Now, tied in very closely with that is elimination of cash. And there's a cash petition on change.org that we've plugged on the show in the past this has now reached or surpassed 100,000 signatures. 104,000, really fast. So this is Jason Bryce from Cash Welcome um, uh, Petition on change.org. Now, just a, a comparison, in 2019, 
I put up a tip petition as Robbie Barwick on change.org on behalf of the, for some reason, they, they, they wouldn't let the Citizens Party be the, the, name, the account holder at the time. So it was in my name. That got to 50,000 signers fairly rapidly. And when it did, media started paying attention to this, to our petition against the government's bill to ban cash transactions over $10,000. This petition from Jason Bryce is for what it calls for as a banking guarantee so that banking services are available everywhere and a cash guarantee, including that businesses have to take cash. Um, This has got to 100,000 really fast, right? So we'll put the link below. If you haven't signed it yet, sign it and share it. This has real momentum. And hopefully the media start paying attention to this. Because what, what the two things we've just talked about, what they show is we're talking about issues that really resonate with the public out there. Now, we're not doing them because we, we're like, you know, populists who think, oh, what's popular? Let's identify with what's popular. We know that both those issues fundamentally relate to the, what is the nature of our banking system. Our party is committed to cleaning up our banking system. So it serves the public and the economy rather than loots it. Right, so this is great. This is a really good sign of what's out there that we are we are we are getting a lot of people to pay attention to this issue and want to act on it. So if you haven't signed it, make sure you do. But look for the publicity around this. Help us get some. Mm. Now, speaking of cleaning up our banking sector, let's yes. get into the first topic. RBA review dictates end of democracy and sovereignty. So, of course, uh, late last week, just before we taped last week's show, um, the Albanese government announced that the RBA had completed its independent review of the Reserve Bank. Well, it's not the R- yeah, it's a, Sorry, it's a review of the RBA. It's not the RBA didn't do it, but the people who did it were just central bankers from other countries. So it's, it's all part of the same. <laughs> it's club. all part of the same network. Yeah. Um, so clearly, the government has been given its marching orders Absolutely. from the bankers. Uh, and we'll go through some of the details of that now. Uh, not all of it. There's a lot there. You can read more in our Australian Alert Service in terms of our coverage. Um, but the bottom line is we're coming into, and we have been on the pathway to a global financial crisis, a new one much worse than the 2008 one for a long time. And these marching orders are designed to give these agencies such as the RBA and APRA and others that protect our so-called financial stability, the powers that they need to do whatever they have to do to intervene in whatever way they have to intervene to keep the current financial arrangements going rather than allowing the government to intervene at a point of crisis to say, "Uh, this is not working, we need to scrap this current arrangement and we need to return to policies that worked in the past, such as national credit to rebuild our economy. We can make a decision to override or overrule the Reserve Bank and things like interest rate decisions and so forth because it's crushing the population. They're basically um, excluding the government ability to do that with the proposals that they have made if the government indeed goes ahead and accepts them, which Chalmers has announced and apparently has the support uh, as well of the shadow finance or treasurer um, to endorse, you know, this full program. So what they're doing here, Elisa, is removing any democratic accountability of the RBA. Now, the RBA is the central bank. It's the most powerful. It runs our economy. It, you know, look at the interest rate decisions, right? And 
it has, there's a mechanism there which gives the government the final say. Mm. And I'm going to give the history of that in a minute. This, this is a demand to remove it. And so you've got to think, first of all, just weigh up the principle of democratic accountability. Why doesn't democratic accountability, which we all, we go to war in the name of democracy. Yeah. <laughs> we destroyed, we killed a million people in Iraq in the name of democracy. Yet when push comes to shove, when the rubber meets the road, when it matters in, in our country and every other country among our allies like the, like the Brits and the Americans, etc., they take away real democracy at every chance they get, especially when it comes to bankers, mm. especially. And this has been the number one political issue in the history of Australia. You just don't know about it because the main party that fought that issue for so long has betrayed their own roots, and that's the Labor Party. Mm -hmm. They were the party that gave us this principle of democratic accountability over the banking system, and they have betrayed it. So let's, quick history lesson, right? We're, gonna, we're making a, a, a short um, YouTube documentary on this, which will illustrate it. I'll give you the slightly longer version, because I think our doco is about six minutes. I might go for seven. <laughs> First of all, I want to play a clip from a a really great little film called Red Ted Theodore and the Great Depression. Just a few seconds. This is how it opens. Where you see the unemployment queues in 1930. This is what it was like. Look at the faces of the men you're seeing on the screen right now, right? We had over 30% male unemployment. And there's, a, there's a chart there that they put in there as well. Where you see this massive jump in yellow, on the yellow line to 30% male unemployment. Mm. Australia suffered in the Great Depression more than most countries did, actually. I mean, everyone suffered, but we suffered really, really badly, right? It was, it was deep, it was biting. And so we had a, a new government, the Scullin Labor government, and that's what this, this um, film's about, who had a treasurer, Ted Theodore. And Ted Theodore was recognised as a financial genius. And he knew how he'd been the treasurer of, of Queensland and whatever. So one of the things that had happened in the, in the few years leading up to the Great Depression, because we're on the gold standard, because we're on the part of the... the um, sterling system, our currency supply had been shrunken dramatically because the, the Brits had called a lot of our um, uh, bullion reserves back to London, right? And we had to, the, the, the cash money had to relate to what we had in, in actual gold and silver. Um, so Ted Theodore knew that was a big chunk of the, of the depression. I mean, we, we remember we had a, a, one of our great old friends, Jock Farmer, um, mm. who had clearly, he, he, he was a kid in the Depression, it had clearly affected him his whole life. Um, he was a very, very frugal man, even though he was a very, very, you know, fairly wealthy man. Very, very frugal because of that experience. And he, I remember he described to me, the shops were full of goods. Mm. No one could buy them. No one could afford them. There was no money. Anyway, so Ted Theodore said to the government's bank, the Commonwealth Bank, which 15 years earlier had shown what a brilliant financial institution it was in in world war one it was just like it was more recently than the gfc was to us now <laughs> right in 2008 the, the the commonwealth bank had shown what it could do it was lending money to industries to councils for infrastructure it transformed australia what it was able to do in world war one that we needed we, we were cut off shipping to 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 the uk our Prime Minister went to the UK, called up the Governor of the Commonwealth Bank and said, I want to secretly buy a fleet of ships, get me the money. Here it is, right there, right now, bang. Without anyone knowing, he bought something like 30 ships. That, was the, that became the Australian National Line. 
and we were able to keep our shipping going in World War I. This is what we'd been able to do. So Ted Theodore knew this. So he's watching these, these unemployment queues and he said to the governor of the Commonwealth Bank that the government that he was the treasurer of owned, he said, issue £20 million in new currency. A third of it's going to go to farmers, which is our biggest industrial sector. Two thirds for public works. Those public works are going to benefit Australia, infrastructure, but they're going to put these guys into jobs so they can get paid money so they can look, look after their families. And what did the Commonwealth Bank Governor do? This is a great, we should put this on the screen. <laughs> so here's, here's the, um, Sir Robert Gibson, the guy in, in the middle there. Uh, this is in Smith's Weekly in 1930. Uh, the headline says, um, I like the headline because mm. they weren't allowed to swear in, like, they weren't in, allowed to put swear headlines. words in the headlines yeah. those days. <laughs> Sir Robert Gibson says he blanky well won't. The actual quote was, you, you are asking me to inflate the currency, I bloody well won't. Mm. Right? He, who worked for them, said no to an order. So this was shocking because the Labor movement, and this was a Labor government, said, whoa, hang on, we fought for this bank. We know what this, the power of this bank has to benefit people right now when it matters, and you're not letting, letting us use it. Why? Now, they didn't get to fight on this issue, um, Elisa, because there was a split in the Labor Party. Joe Lyons quit the Labor Party, went over with Menzies, and they, that led to an election and they became, he became the government instead. But probably to Lyons' credit, I'll give John Adams the benefit of the doubt, who thinks that Joe Lyons was the greatest Prime Minister ever, and I absolutely don't, John Curtin was, but it's probably to Joe Lyons' credit that he did call for a Royal Commission, mm. when he was the Prime Minister, he did establish a Royal Commission in 1935 into this issue. Yeah. The question was, who's in charge of the financial system? Is it unelected bankers or is it the elected government? And the Royal Commission went for um, close to two years and their final report was unequivocal, right? The, have we got the quotes there? Yeah, this is what it said. The federal parliament is ultimately responsible for monetary policy and the government of the day is the executive of the parliament. And then it goes on to say, if there's a dispute mm-hmm. between the bank and the government... The first thing the bank, the government has to say to the bank is, the responsibility is on us, not you. We hear your objection, but we're going to overrule your objection. And then it said, it is the duty of the bank to implement the will of the government. Mm-hmm. That's what that Royal Commission found. We've had two Royal Commissions into banking in Australia. That was the first one. And that was reflected when after John Curtin came to power, because this wasn't really utilised until John Curtin came to power, this you know, no, this it capability. wasn't. Under wartime conditions, Curtin, you know, started using it straight away, but then he enshrined it into legislation when the 1945 Reserve Bank Act was written. So, the, so no, the 1945 Commonwealth Bank Commonwealth Act, the Reserve Bank, Bank, Bank wasn't there yet. So that's what he did. Because, now, Chifley, Chifley is the guy that is most credited rightly with... with constructing our banking system world in World War II and after because he was a treasurer, right? And Curtin had his hands full saving Australia. But Kifley, Chifley and Curtin were a team. They were the best political team in the history of Australia. And in 1937, the same year the Royal Commission came out, Chip Curtin had said he was the leader of the party and he gave this amazing speech in Fremantle for the election campaign that year. And he went after this and he demanded that the recommendations of the Royal Commission be implemented. And he said... If the government of the day deliberately excludes itself from 
the making of monetary policy. It cannot govern except in a secondary degree. Mm. That is, this is this was an Australian Labor leader saying we either have this power or someone else is in charge. And remember, so Jim Chalmers are committed last week to putting someone else fully in charge, mm-hmm. right? Someone else is already in charge. Someone else fully in charge. That's the contrast. But yeah. They, they, when they took power, they were able to use War Powers Acts, War Powers, to get the Commonwealth Bank to do the right thing straight away and start. Mm-hmm. And it was it was transformative for Australia. They enshrined it in the 1945 Commonwealth Bank Act. For the from 45 to 49, while Labor was still in government, they used that power mm-hmm. to make the Commonwealth Bank do the right thing. They, they they it was the Commonwealth Bank that invested in the car industry, right? That got the car industry going. When they passed the Snowy Mountain Scheme Act, Elisa, to start the Snowy Mountain Scheme. Chiefly inserted into the act that it should be funded by the Commonwealth Bank. Now it wasn't because he lost office that year, and Menzies made sure that didn't happen. But that was was the clear intent of it, mm. right? Um, and funnily enough, what Jim Chalmers so that was forty five when it was enshrined in law. Mm-hmm. It's seventy eight years later. Yeah, it has never been used in that time. No. So this is that nineteen forty five Commonwealth Bank Act had a section eleven. Yes. which specified that in the event of a dispute between the government and the, the Commonwealth Bank at that time, which was the country's central bank, uh, the government would prevail. So that was reflecting that Royal Commission. That was carried over when the Reserve Bank was split away as a new central bank from the Commonwealth Bank. That was carried over into the new governing legislation of the Reserve Bank the Reserve Bank Act 1959. So there was still this Section 11. It's that section that this RBA review has demanded be repealed, even though it says, as you foreshadowed, what this is from the RBA review, while no Australian government has used these override powers, there is the possibility that established conventions cease to be observed. The current legislation creates the risk that the government wields or threatens to wield power in a way that undermines the independent operation of monetary policy. Think about what it means for people today, right? And the two examples I want to give, because you know, I've given you the history of it. Think about the interest rate rises in the last year and a half. Now, we've criticised those interest rate rises on this show but not that interest rates shouldn't be normalised. They should never have gone down to zero, right? Mm. But what we've criticised is this stupid idea that the that inflation, which, is caught, which has multiple causes, can be solved by smothering, literally smothering the economy by bankrupting everything, everyone through interest rate rises. And so the Reserve Bank, though, gets to operate independently. Peter Costello did that. Even though, this, even though Peter Costello didn't take away this clause is section 11 he's the one that made a big show of saying the reserve bank will set monetary policy independently mm-hmm. right but it's always been there so that if the government had enough um courage it could say it could step into a situation like this and say look you are crushing the people of australia with these rate rises stop it mm. we are telling you to stop it right and that's what they want to take away and Oh, just one other quick example yeah. was bail-in. You know, mm. we, we've talked about bail-in a lot. We're the, we're the experts on bail-in in Australia. The bail-in is the idea that if a bank's failing, um, the authorities will steal your deposits in the bank to keep it propped up, 
right? Rather than look at why it might be failing in the first place and, and stop it from gambling with money and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, when they set up bail-in, the people at the Bank for International Settlements and the Financial Stability Board, when they set up bail-in, they stipulated that the financial authorities must be completely independent of the government because they know that when push comes to shove, a government that wants to get re-elected might decide it's not a good idea to allow the banks to steal their money. Mm-hmm. Whereas unelected bureaucrats who have no democratic accountability mm. won't have such compunctions. Yeah. Right? And this is, this is, the, this is where this, this stuff um, matters in the real world. Mm-hmm. So, and and um, what that quote from the Reserve Bank Review foreshadows, though, mm. is that's already the situation. What if it's something else? Well, that's right. What if there's a bigger revolt that the government of the day is forced to respond to by saying, yeah, let's use the bank as a national bank? Exactly. And by the way, um, Paul Keating weighed in today and he said, he actually said that he had considered using that power regard, in regard to interest rates at one point. Um, and he told the ABC that this override power should not be waived through, like they should not repeal it and waive it through Parliament. And we'll get to how they want to waive it through shortly. He said it must remain in the Act. This is a quote from him. Political power, its management and employment in office must, in a working democracy, take precedence over any subordinate bureaucratic structure. So that is rather interesting coming from someone who helped liberalise and strip the economy sure. of any regulation. I mean, t- look, take it, take, it, take it as a, you know, as a big deal. If, if Paul Keating can see that this is wrong, because mm. we don't disagree with Paul Keating on everything, as it turns out, but we, we spent a lot of years opposing this guy, especially on these banking matters. But if even he, the guy who privatised the Commonwealth Bank, can see this is wrong, right, understand how bad it is. Mm. We've got technocrats in the form of Jim Chalmers and that yeah. who have totally captured by the global banking apparatus. Um, and, the, of course, the RBA review also, as people would have heard, calls for an expert monetary policy board so it puts a lot of emphasis on this idea that you have to bring in experts plus in addition to that board itself an external expert advisory group and uh, LNP Senator Jared Rennick said this is just handing power over to unelected bankers and other experts who will quite often be nothing but lackeys. Well can I just add there because I want to it's interesting you quote Jared Right, because back to the question of why did they, why have they, they've got 51 recommendations in this review, Elisa. The first one is to get rid of a power that's never been used in 78 years. <laughs> yeah, the very so, first. So why, everyone would have heard about the RBA review this week. Why is the first recommendation something that, relate, that in practice shouldn't even be an issue? Well... Let's quote Jared again. Yeah. I want to play two quick clips. First one, we'll play them together. First one's Jared Rennick in Senate Estimates, and the second one is Green Senator Nick McKimmons in Senate Estimates. Now, this, this is a Liberal and a Green. And those two guys, along with Malcolm Roberts, for the last few years in Senate Estimates, every time the RBA has come in, they've started peppering them with this question. Listen to the question, and you'll start to get a sense why this is such an urgency to scrap this. Section 36 of the Banking Act gives the RBA power to direct loans where it is necessary or expedient to do so 
in the public interest. I mean, you've just printed hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you've accepted that maybe that was overcooked a little bit. That's, more, that's a paraphrase, yeah. not, not a direct quote, yeah. obviously. Um, are you aware of that power that you've got in Section 36 of the, the Banking Act? And why hasn't and won't the RBA use that power to actually direct credit into, um, into more productive sides of the economy rather than the speculative side of the economy. And I agree with you, it's not up to the RBA on what decisions they make, but if Parliament decides that on central, essential infrastructure like bridges, roads that have an asset, that is an asset that generates a return, that the RBA can lend in or you know, issue credit within an infrastructure bank. But if we can find $200 billion to underwrite banks or back them up, uh, we need to find a similar amount of money to build some infrastructure and get the real economy moving as well. So what these guys, Nick and Jared, Nick McKim, Jared Rennick, have been saying for a number of years now, you can print all the money in the world for the private banks. Here's the needs of the Australian people. Why can't you do that? And we've and done they some... they can. They've admitted they can. They've admitted, though, it's a decision of the government. Mm. That's what, that's what the RBA have fallen down when, when they've been pressed by uh, Senator Rennick, yeah. Senator McKim and Senator Roberts. The RBA's response has been, well, it's a government decision. This review takes that away. And, it, and it gives, it's given away too by the fact that the other thing that the RBA review wants to repeal is Section 36 of the same governing legislation. Which, which the clip, as we've, the clip yeah, we used, yeah. um, so Kim mentions that. So they, the fact they want to take that away too, which is the power that allows the Reserve Bank to direct the lending policies of private banks, yeah. shows that this is what it's aimed at. I mean, they're really worried. Here you have federal senators, people in, in all parties in government that want to begin to wield banking power on behalf of the people instead of private interests. Yep. That is a big, big deal. That hasn't happened for a very long time. Um, now, therefore, they, in order to get through this package of recommendations, one of the really interesting things that the RBA review panel says is before proceeding with any of the changes that need to be legislated and passed through Parliament, they insist there has to be full bipartisan agreement before it even proceeds, that it's basically locked in or else don't do it. They literally say, you know, don't do it if it's not locked in because yeah. that could backfire and explode a whole bigger debate on the whole issue. Um, and so they actually have a whole chapter in the review where they lay out this alternative means, it's not their preferred means, but an alternative means to get this these changes done without legislation. And that includes, among other things, drafting a new statement on the conduct of monetary policy, which is the agreement between the Treasurer and the Reserve Bank on how they will interpret the legislation that governs the RBA, uh, and that that new statement would clarify these key issues, particularly regarding central bank independence, and this is what they say, including a statement that the government will not use its overall power and the RBA will not use its power to determine the lending policy of banks. Now, Elisa, this is really sinister. This is the plot. This is a plot in plain sight. And you would only get it if you understand the significance of what the power they're taking away. They're plotting in plain sight. So they've said, Don't, you must legislate this, but only if it's bipartisan. In other words, 
Only if, remember the story of Balin, it, it passed the Senate with eight senators in the room. No one else, they didn't even bother to go to a vote, right? What they're saying is only if you, Jim Chalmers, and Angus Taylor get together and say thumbs up, under those circumstances, it can be rushed through the House in a minute, it can be rushed through the Senate in a minute, and it's done. No debate. Someone might get up to say something. They'll, they'll be given a minute to protest or whatever, and that's it. Mm. That's yeah. how this. That's how that's such such. When the two major parties are bipartisan, that's how it can happen. And what they're saying is, if that's difficult, if there's a chance for a debate, an act, just a debate that may make this controversial and threaten that bipartisan agreement, don't even go there. Mm. Do it through this alternative means. So you know what that means. We, the Citizens Party, our collaborators. Collaborators, we must make it a debate. We must bust this bipartisan yes. um, pact to get this to, to get this through. Mm. So what we're gonna we've been focusing. We're, we're still going to focus on what we've been focusing on. But we're going to produce this video, and um, we're going to show people the issues. But at a certain point, not right now, but at a certain point, we're going to put out the word to you all saying you've got to call Jim Chalmers, call Angus Taylor, call your local member of parliament, and hit them hard. Demand this doesn't go through. Um, there will be some kind of there'll, there'll be some kind of understanding if there's legislation what it's what it's called etc. So wait for the instructions on that. But when I when we put the word up, you got to go hard on this. We mm. can bust up this bipartisan pact and stop this thing in its tracks, and that should be our goal when it comes to this power. And if you heard uh, Jim Chalmers' press conference when he announced this review, uh, he. He prefaced, he said, we intend to introduce legislation to do everything that the RBA review demanded, but he prefaced it by saying, subject to opposition support, we intend to introduce legislation. And then he talked about the fact that uh, these measures to, uh, well, this is the way he put it, to reinforce the independence of the RBA by removing the government's right to veto its decisions, that's necessary... Uh, so that the RBA is better equipped to make decisions in increasingly complex, in an increasingly complex cha uh, and challenging environment, which is a reference to this financial crisis that we're in and yep. which is about to get dramatically worse. And I want to refer to the background because you, what you see impinging here is this ideology of central bankers being given complete top-down power as a form of technocratic government yep. situated over and above elected governments. And we've talked about this a lot in the past when we've exposed what Balin's all about, where you have this international bank, the Central Bankers Bank, the Bank for International Settlements, that's been able to dictate policy throughout the world to the countries that have signed on to it. Um, and one of the key weapons of policy that they wield during a time of financial crisis is austerity because it means in order to keep the banks and the banking system going, you squeeze the people more and more, as we've seen the RBA doing with their interest rate decisions on mortgages and so forth, um, in order to have a siphon of money coming from the population, squeezing it out of industry and so yeah. forth to keep that um, economic and financial framework afloat rather than overhauling junking, replacing the system. And after uh, I've been working on writing a series of articles, which we can put a link to below, on the origins or the genesis, as I call it, of austerity policy, because that policy came into effect 
It was a policy designed by the Bank of England and British Treasury bureaucrats after World War I when uh, there was a period of dramatic inflation and those policies were uh, trialled in Britain itself and they kind of did a pilot program there where they slashed budgets and the effect of it was extraordinary where unemployment went through the roof and yet to them that was success because it allowed them to keep the financial model going. So then they had test tube projects in Austria and in Italy under fascism. The Austrian program uh, was run by the League of Nations, which was populated. This came out of the post-war, the Allied um, military command set up an economic body, which morphed into the League of Nations, but it was populated by all of the people from the British Treasury that had come up with this pro- pilot program for austerity. And what you, the period you're talking about now is also in the immediate wake of the Ted Theodore Robert Gibson fight, That's because right. it was those guys in Britain who sent down... Well, Sir Otto Niemeyer... Sir Otto Niemeyer to Australia to make sure we did what they wanted to do. Sir Otto Niemeyer started off at the Treasury, went to work for the Bank of England. He worked for the League of Nations economic body that wrote the programs for Austria. They worked with the leading advisor to the Chancellor of Austria, Cipel or Cipel, his name was. That advisor's name was Ludwig von Mises of the famous Austrian School of Economics who went on to found or co- be a part of the found foundation group of the Mont Pelerin Society, which dictates all of our neoliberal policies today. Yep. Um, but the same exact people uh, influenced the government of Mussolini. And, and in both cases, actually, in um, Austria also, this led to fascism because they just, in order to uh, keep that austerity going they had to clamp down on the kind of eruptions within the population using fascist means. Um, The programs that they wrote for Austria helped to dictate the reparations repayments for Germany post-World War I, which also pushed Germany into a financial situation that they couldn't get out of and which fed into the drive for war and what became World War II. Uh, And then after World War II a number of those agencies that were within the League of Nations, which ran economic cartels during both wars, then uh, formed the Bank for International Settlements. Well, that was in 1930, so that was before the end of the war, of course. But the bank, there, was a, there was a big fight over, given the Bank for International Settlements under people like Niemeyer colluded with the Nazis in the war, people wanted to scrap it after the war, and this gang of bankers saved it. Mm. And, and it's been, it sits yes. there now as a central authority that pushes this idea that central banks must be outside of the reach of authority of governments. It's a glo- this is the original yeah. globalism that they created. Well, that's right, because the themes um, that set that up came from two international financial conferences in 1920 and 1922, held in Brussels and Genoa, by these British technocrats like Niemeyer and many others that you can read about in the series, Mm. uh, who defined this new financial code, which was all based on financial stability and the stability of prices, of currencies. You know, you had to keep a stable financial framework in order. And if it meant crushing the people, so what? I mean, you know, they talked at the Brussels conference about... um, 
people were consuming too much butter and sugar. Um, well, you know, today that's becoming a factor again because the cost of living is squeezing us into the same austerity. What's that guy from the Bank of England said this week? Get used to being poor. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I was absolutely horrified this week to see one kilo of cheese was $17.79. I mean, in World War, during World War II, my great-grandma complained about the war rations that they got, which yeah. was something like a tiny bit of butter, a couple of eggs, and she would say, enough cheese to put in a mousetrap. Well, that's about <laughs> as much cheese as we can afford to buy at this present time, given that situation. So, Unless we get more donations. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, for the average Australian, I mean. But, yeah, the, the independence of central banks was the other really central theme to all of this because Montague Norman, who was the head of the Bank of England, who was coordinating this whole program of austerity becoming the new ideology, which then has been subsequently picked up by the Montpelier Society and rammed down the throats of every economic agency and think tank and politician and been surrounded by it. But yeah, he in 1925, Montague Norman defined central bank independence and a, a club of international central bankers, which became the Bank for International Settlements, as the be-all and end-all, um, because the only way they can get away with the kind of decisions that need to be made in the coming crisis... That they think need to be made. ..that they think need to be made is to take those decisions out of the purview of yeah. elected governments who have to get... They have to make the kind of decisions that will see them re-elected. So take it out of that purview and put it into the hands of unelected technocrats. Now, let me make a quick contrast that can also segue to the next segment. There's a... Back in the Cold War, which, were, which, were, which was fought along these terms, there any kind of government action in the economy was denounced as socialism <laughs> by people like yeah. this gang mm. you're talking about. Um, the way that they told us in the West that we were superior to communist countries like Russia and like China is because we had far better economies. Look at those poor people. Look, they're starving. They've got queues, etc. Well, the world doesn't work that way anymore. So there's a, there is, the biggest economy in the world is a communist country which accepted the mistakes of how it had been implementing its economic system and decided to change it and adopted many of the... It allowed, it's, it, China has allowed freedom, mm. economic freedom, in a huge way for its people um, because it knows that that kind of you know, free enterprise at a local level is very, very good and it results in a lot of productivity. But what haven't they done? They haven't given up their government power over the banks. Mm. And so they've, what, what they have done is, is create an economic system where there's a lot of freedom for individual entrepreneurs, etc. But the banks are on a very tight leash. They have big state banks that dominate the financial system. They're all government banks. And they have used those in exactly the way that Ted Theodore wanted to use the Commonwealth Bank in World War II. Um, in, in the Great Depression, Chief Curtin and Chifley were able to use it in World War II. The way, the way, um, uh, uh, what's his name, Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War used the used the greenback. Then the way Alexander Hamilton advocated national banking in that day. The Chinese have done it, and so while we are complaining now about the price of cheese, and we look in Western, look at the economies of the Western world under this system that we've been describing. Look at how what's happened to our living standard. In that communist country, their living standard has gone up and up and up and up and up without inflation. Mm. Up and up and up and up and up. And so that has led to a different problem, which is 
the people who want to protect this system, Elisa, have talked us into trying to go to war with that system because mm. what they're trying to protect is not us. They're trying to protect this kind of financial power. They do not want us exactly. to decide, hang on, maybe the Chinese are doing it better. Mm. Yes, which brings us to segment number two, yes. payday for pigs gorging at the war trough. Uh, and Richard Barden has written this up for the alert service, which we previewed briefly last week. Um, I might, I might take this you, one. If yeah, you don't go mind. ahead. I want to put, I, I want to introduce the public to three people. <laughs> we'll put these pictures on the on the um, on the screen one at a time, because <laughs> we're going to we're singling out these people in this. Richard singled them out of this article as pigs with their snouts in the Orcus war trough, because that's what's happening. This is. We have been told that China is a threat and so we've had to buy $368 billion in submarines but we can't, the, the, the budget in a few weeks is going to say we can't have this program, we can't have this program, we can't have this service, etc. because we're committed to this other thing, right? And it's so important. Well, it turns out the people who, did, who took our foreign policies in this direction put us in a confrontation with China they are now cashing in. Kaching, kaching, kaching. So the first person I want to introduce you to, this is Peter Jennings. So that picture is the real Peter Jennings. Um, that's him with his snout in the trough. Uh, if you want to know what he looks like um, in the media, there's, there's another picture of him here. Peter Jennings is the former executive director of ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which for 10 years... I mean, what they, the, the demonization of China that flowed out of ASPE, it was vicious, it was, it was garbage, and it was, in many cases, ridiculous. So one of the reasons I call, I call um, whenever I introduce Richard Barden to people, uh, at least as you know, I call him our ASPE debunker-in-chief. I mean, I kid you not, going back to 2015, maybe even 2014, Richard has been writing articles in the alert service about what a pack of liars ASPE is. One of the ones that we keep highlighting is, it was Aspie who said, oh, China hacked the census. 2016, mm. the census failed. Remember, we all had to do the census online that night and it failed. Oh, what went wrong? Oh, China hacked... The, he went around for weeks saying, China hacked the census, China hacked the census. No, some dropkick at the private company that we had outsourced the census to, whose job was to do all that electronic... Um, provide all the software and hardware, etc., forgot to turn a modem on. That's what happened. Mm. But it was this... It was. The, the China demonization has been the death of a thousand cuts, which is an ironic thing because that's a Chinese saying. It, all these little things, this all, and they all came from Aspie. Any little slant on something that was negative about China all came from Aspie, as did all the big ones, including all the claims about the Uyghurs being, a million Uyghurs being locked up and all that. So it all came from Aspie under this clown. And he shouldn't have been there. He should have been locked up. He's the guy who advised John Howard to, when he was his, his um, uh, advisor at the time of the Iraq war to invade Iraq. Why did we invade Iraq under Peter Jennings' advice for John Howard? Not because we thought there were weapons of mass destruction, but because we could, we could um, in solidarity with our alliance with the Americans. That's why we did it. A million dead Iraqis later, that's why we did it. And he, this guy got to run this think tank. So he's done that for 10 years. Here's the reason you think... If you think China's a threat and you're going to make comments below, please do. The reason you did is because of that pig I put on the screen. He did it. And so what hap what's happened is he and a few other people from Aspie have gone off. Aspie is government funded. I think it was on 400 grand a year there though. That was, but that's a part of the course for top public servants. Aspie was defence department funded and funded by weapons companies and the US government. Um, 
he has gone off and started a private thing now, and it's called Strategic Analysis Australia, and he's done it with Michael Shoebridge and another guy from Aspie, and this is where they get to operate privately now, and they get to all those networks that, that they formed and, and all the glad handing and all, that, all, that, all those conferences, etc. they get to now be lobbyists, right? Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. The next one is um, the next picture. This, this is the real Joe Hocking. Now, and then we'll put the, we'll put the alternative Joe Hockey picture up. Um, Joe Hockey was a former treasurer of Australia. Joe Hockey is the guy who, as treasurer, told our car industry, get lost. We didn't want a car industry because cars are relatively peaceful. Now, thanks to Joe Hockey, because he went on to become US Am- Australia's ambassador to the United States well, under Trump, right? And these guys, I can tell you something now, Elisa, they all thought, they all hated Trump privately. Mm. Forget all this. You know what they hated about Trump? Trump said, and he still says it, we should be able to get on with Russia and China. Even though Trump said a lot of bad stuff about China so he could, you know, force them into a trade deal. Um, he was happy to do the deal and then get on with it, right? But no, no, the people he employed wanted to go to war. And that's who people like Joe Hockey worked with and colluded with. Mm. And so once he stopped being ambassador, do you know he still calls himself Mr. Ambassador? Joe Hockey goes around calling himself Mr. Ambassador. That is not an Australian tradition. Once you stop being an ambassador in Australia, you're no longer Mr. Ambassador. Once you stop being Prime Minister, you're no longer Mr. Prime Minister. It's an American well, tradition. It's an American tradition. Americans, if once you're ambassador, you're Mr. Ambassador for life. Once you're president, you're Mr. President for life. That fat bloated pig at the trough has is, is imported into, into Australia. This American tradition, because he started a company called Bondi Partners. One of the guys on it is the former... The global chairman is the former U.S. Navy secretary in the Trump administration, Richard Spencer, right? And he's got a whole bunch of people. And you can see these guys on Sky News spouting their strategic analysis, etc. But they're lobbyists now. Ka-ching, 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 making squillions. And then the other person, the final, the final pig at the trough, is Mr. Christopher Pine. <laughs> now, don't more, laugh. A bit more dignified pigging around. <laughs> <laughs> well, they used to call him the prancing poodle. He's now a prancing pig. Um, Pine, look, Pine, Pine showed what, he, what his intent was as soon as he left government. Even before he left government, he went from government where he was a defence materials minister straight into Ernst & Young, a job with Ernst & Young, which was working for the Defence Department. It should never have been allowed to happen. It led to an inquiry, but oh, that's okay. Now he's got Pine and Partners, right, a big lobbyist in Canberra. And what sort of things do they do? Well, the other week... While you were being told to, to um, get upset because Dan Andrews went to China, on the Victorian taxpayer's dime, in order to do a deal for students, because we haven't had the students here for a while, and he's had seven trips to China, and he was criticised for not taking the media, even though before COVID, on, on half of those trips, he didn't take the media either. It was fly in, fly out kind of thing. So while you were being told to worry about that, there was a federal liberal politician, Senator James Patterson, in Washington, D.C., a backbencher then being wined and dined by the Washington establishment to have strategic discussions, etc. Um, he was there with a Labor member of parliament, um, uh, Marilyn Swanson, I think her name is, from the, the Newcastle electorate. The two of them went there. How did they get there? Not the taxpayers didn't pay for it. 
They didn't pay for it. Christopher Pine and partners yeah. paid for it. And Patterson's come back from his vetting by the United States to be appointed the Shadow Home Affairs Minister by Dutton now. Swanson got some criticism for this and she said, well, 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 well you know, we, we, might be a, we might be a base for Orca submarines. Mm. Yeah, that's why she went. The, the, so that the people of Newcastle can have a big fat nuclear target put on them, right? They, they, Christopher Pine's job was to wine and dine her over in Washington so that she's agreeable to Newcastle being the basis of the Orca submarines. Mm, that's Meryl Swanson. Meryl Swanson, sorry. Because let me tell you something. If you, if you live in the place where the Orca submarines are going to be, you are forcing someone in China to, to, have, to, to put a target on a map and say, in a nuclear war, that, con- that place is now a target. That's what's going to happen. Mm. And this is the sort of buttering up they've done. And so for Christopher Pine, it's ka-ching, 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 cashing in on this. It's all about the money now. And meanwhile, you're going to hear in the budget what you, they can't spend on, the services mm. they can't provide, why they can't, they're not even going to put it in the budget. They'll say, oh, we can't afford to put up money for a, for a, a postal bank because even though it'll pay for itself eventually, oh, no, no, we've got to balance the budget, sorry. But when it comes to this... They're, 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 when it comes to defence, they're opening up the purse strings and all these pigs are lining up mm. to engorge themselves. Yep. And have a look at this article from the press well, yesterday, I think it was, where Andrew Green at ABC is revealing more people making money out of this um, over well, time. this is the American side of the junket. Mm, yeah, he talks about a cavalcade of retired senior American military officers that have been given high-paying advisory contracts with the Defence Department. One former admiral... Uh, retired Admiral John Richardson being paid seven and a half grand a day for his expertise, and this includes. And that's that doesn't include accommodation and transport. No, flights. that's on that's top. on top of it. Mm. And other there's dozens of ex-military officers that are doing this, including none other than James Clapper, former U.S. Director of National Intelligence, who helped set up the our Office of National Intelligence, and many others working within our intelligence agencies. What did Paul Keating say when he talked about the, the AUKUS announcement in San Diego? He said of the three people there for that Kabuki theatre announcing a $368 billion deal, one person was paying, our guy. Yeah. And all these people are lining up to take their cut. And this has come from Pentagon documents released to Congress last month that apparently a lot of these contracts have been awarded without tender, so throw aside the free market too, uh, due to an absence of competition for technical reasons. No. No wonder the American, these, these American neocons and the people in the Washington blob love us, mm. Elisa. Yeah. They're making squillions out of us yeah, right yeah. now so that we can make ourselves a target, a Ukrainian-style proxy target for China in a war against our number one trading partner, yeah. a country that's, not, that's never done anything to us except make us lots and lots of money. Now, we haven't, just to note, we haven't said anything about the Defence Strategic Review, but we'll no. set that aside for next That's week. That's a more detailed a, discussion. Yeah. But Unless we want to go for another hour. <laughs> Suffice to say, we're on to it. We'll be um, <laughs> filling you in on the details. So, yeah, that's the show for this week. Um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, marching orders? Reminders? I don't think so. Oh, no, we're just... Re- just um, uh, like we said, the submissions to the inquiries have closed today, so yeah. that's great. Wait, Have a break. Watch, look out for our announcement about what we're going to do about mm. this RBA review power. Yep. So, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. See you next week.
authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.